Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska named three bands that aren't the boss tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. How you guys doing? It's been a hell of a week, right? It's been a hell of a year. I gotta be honest. It's been really tough to make this season of the podcast. My wife got promoted at her job and we moved to Brooklyn um, early September. But before that, I lived in Minneapolis, Minnesota for eight years. I've lived all over America, but Minneapolis has been the longest I've lived in any one place as an adult. It was the only place that I've moved in my life just because I just wanted to live there. It wasn't for a job or a girl or school. And I stayed there because I loved it so much. It was the closest thing I've had to a home since I started touring and making music full-time 17 years ago. So when the whole world watched George Floyd get murdered on video a little over two weeks ago, it was, you know, of course, horrific in and of itself. But it was even more jarring for me because I, I've shopped at the Cub Foods. I've walked on the sidewalk next to where he died. When the protests started and the fucking cops started shooting tear gas at peaceful protesters and then the riots began and the city burned, that was two miles from my old apartment. Two blocks from my friend's house. God knows how many of my friends lived within a half mile of it all. I have friends who were arrested, friends who saw cars cruising around with their license plates removed and the lights turned off slow rolling through their block, weird people doing strange things in their neighborhoods, one guy I know had an AK round go through his window. <laughs> Needless to say, I haven't been sleeping very well. It's funny, a month ago, before all this started, I wished I was back in Minneapolis so I could just quarantine with my friends and chill in their backyard instead of being stuck in my apartment in Brooklyn. And two weeks ago, I wished I was in Minneapolis so I could be in the streets with my friends, protesting with the city I love. So meanwhile, it's been really hard to focus on writing a podcast. And I was trying to block this all out, make this podcast a refuge from it all. I really didn't want to... 
I understand the value of escape. I was having a real hard time deciding if I should bring all this up to release some pressure from my mind or pretend like it didn't exist so you guys could escape your own minds and reality for a bit. But then I had this interview with this writer, an artist named Miles Johnson. Miles was one of the first people I sought out for this season. He wrote this incredible piece on the death of Whitney Houston for The Advocate. He wrote another astounding piece on the life of Little Richard for the New York Times. And I, you know, from the jump, felt like he was the person I wanted to talk to about the complexity of the legacy that Whitney Houston's left behind. But I gotta say, for as difficult as the writing of this podcast has been in the last few weeks, the interviews have been such a delightful experience, a real refuge, you know, mostly because it's just so nice to talk to passionate people about something other than the things that we're all talking about over and over. But also, because we're all in this weird headspace after months of quarantine and then with America on the verge of revolution right now you know, every interview starts with like a state of your union address you know, most of the people that I talk to are total strangers when I ask these strangers how they're doing they don't just fill up the space with pleasantries anymore that's just not what we do now right now you ask people how they're doing and they actually tell you how they are doing and they want to know the same thing from you. Which is really nice. And so I started my interview with Miles Johnson the other day. He, of course, told me how he was doing. And then he asked me the same. And I told him a lot of the stuff that I just told you at the beginning of the episode. Being from Minneapolis, about the stress, worried about my friends. You know, how hard it's been to focus. And Miles hit me with this. You know what's interesting about this, right? This might be this might be the like writer poet artist in me. But what's interesting about this is that you're having a similar struggle with doing this that I believe Whitney Houston had in her life of balancing the real ghetto life that she came from with like the art that she wanted to create. Mm-hmm. And it's like you're having like a similar like parallel like <laughs> struggle in my in, in, to, to me from observation. Yeah, man. Oh, that one hit me hard. Because here I am, trying to write this episode about Whitney's cultural significance to black Americans, to the LGBTQ community, and to the rest of the world. Trying to explore all that, understand all that, while at the same time understanding what it really cost her to try to be so many things to so many people. And I can't keep my focus long enough to write a few thousand words and edit some audio to put together a 30-minute podcast. And here's Whitney with the weight of the world on her shoulders, with so much to deal with. And if you don't know all about it, I'm not really going to go in depth the details of their struggles here because one, you'd have to live under a rock to not know about it. But if you really don't know about it, it's been covered so many times by so many people. In my opinion, sometimes covered far too much. But if you want to find out about it 
watch one of the two documentaries that are made about her or read Miles' piece in The Advocate. Read one of a million other pieces that are ranging from brilliant and thoughtful to uncomfortably exploitive, and you can learn all about it. The moral of the story is Whitney was dealing with a lot her entire life. What Miles said, it it just made my mind race, and and I instantly thought of something that Dessa said in our interview Dessa, singer, writer, rapper, Doomtree Records, second episode, talking about Whitney's voice. Something that Dessa said in an interview, sort of in passing, about Whitney's vocal performance. Yeah, but I mean, there is that Ginger Rogers thing, right? Like backwards and in heels, that she's doing all the steps that Fred is. But I think that there's a slight difference, too, with Whitney, in that, at least to to my little kid eyes, you know, part of it was the sweat. I think about that a lot when I'm on stage. Whitney's sweat like a fucked up, you know, (laughs) that was like very much part of her live performance. And so you have this, this impossibly beautiful human form. To me, there is no, there is no human being that is more beautiful than Whitney. Um, But you have her in, there is no mistaking that she is working, that this is labor. But the other thing though, is that secular singers they don't smile while they sing anymore. That's not popular. Think of the last time you saw just a big shit-eating grin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Billie Eilish, does, I don't know if Billie Eilish has teeth. Like, I love Billie <laughs> Eilish. She's awesome. But that's not how we do it anymore. And, and for the most part, being a singer isn't about having a voice anymore. Like, in some ways, I'm lucky that the industry and our tastes changed around me. But you don't have to have a virtuosic voice to be a very famous singer. Whereas... I think singing was about singing then, whereas singing now is about songs. This is what keeps ringing in my head since I'm going to talk with Miles. Whitney, she wasn't just going out there, pouting across the stage. She wasn't phoning it in. She wasn't Lana Del Rey. I mean, it wasn't until later in her life that you could even see that she was carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders because every single goddamn night she's going out there and singing her brains out with a smile on her face. These burdens that she's dealing with, this wasn't just stuff that appeared later in life, with the fame, with the tabloids, with Bobby Brown. Watch one of those documentaries. Read about her life. Sure, she came from singing royalty, and she came from this gospel tradition. She didn't grow up in the ghetto, but she did grow up black in Newark, New Jersey in the 60s and 70s. Whitney would have been almost four years old when the people in Newark erupted in protest over, surprise, surprise, police brutality. Of course, it's never just one thing. Decades of striking inequality, unaddressed poverty, and years of abuse from the cops in that city, just like my old home of Minneapolis, rose up. Then the police cracked down. The National Guard came in. The riots began and Newark burnt to the ground. So this is where Whitney's life started. The exact same place that some of our lives are today. But we all know that the tragedy, the suffering, the pressure, and the stress didn't stop for Whitney. That only increased over time, exponentially. I wanted to make this episode about her impact. Beyond music, as a cultural icon 
But I realized through my research, through my talk with Miles, that you can't just talk about what she meant to black America, to the LGBTQ community, to women, to the world, without talking about what all that did to her. Because the more people learned her name, and the more people heard that voice, the more people wanted a piece of her. Till we tore her apart. Some sports writers, when they talk about Jackie Robinson, they say that his career in baseball... The abuse he suffered being the first black player in the major leagues took years of his life. Which seems to line up since this incredible athlete died at 53. So it's important to remember that while I have this platform to vent about my rough week, I get to have all these strangers ask me how I'm doing and they actually listen. And I live in a time where we talk about mental health and we check in with each other. Not to mention the fact that I am a white, straight American, basically won the life lottery. Whitney, she had to deal with everything she was dealing with. Every day. And step up on stage, step up to the mic, like Dessa said. Sing her heart out. In full makeup. In a ball gown. And heels. With a beautiful smile on her face. We'll be making love the whole night through. So I'm saving all my love. Yes, I'm saving all my love. Yes, I'm saving all my love for you. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of factors that are just kind of on their face. One, Whitney Houston's a woman. Uh, and a black woman. And there was some tension too in her career with, you know, her fan base, questions of her fan base. This is writer, poet, essayist, Hanifa Durakib. His work is everywhere. New York Times, NPR, Pitchfork, Esquire. He's written a couple of great books. I've been trying to find a place for him on this podcast since I started it last year. Fortunately, I found one in this season after I read this beautiful piece he wrote for the Paris Review called On Summer Crushing. It's just a wonderful breakdown of the Whitney Houston song, How Will I Know, and its ability to articulate that exciting, painful uncertainty of having a crush on someone. I really can't recommend that you read it enough. But when we spoke, our conversation went in a very different direction. Less to the romance of the song and more to the challenges Whitney faced in her career, especially early on. Because there was a backlash to the crossover success that we talked about in episode one. All those things that allowed the self-titled Whitney Houston debut album to be this incredibly diverse record with this true crossover appeal and these songs that would draw in both black and white audiences were not so present on the second album. Whitney. The one with I Want to Dance with Somebody. I mean, that record is a monstrous success in its own right. But black audiences who heard that first record and hailed her as the future of R&B couldn't help but feel 
a little forgotten. I mean, a lot of the crisis of Blackness with Whitney Houston, those rumblings kind of started with the first album, but really picked up with the second album. Black folks writing her off as someone who was crafted for and, and specifically for white people. Um, she had this debut that was the biggest selling debut of all time and won like a massive amount of American music awards. But there were Black radio stations around that second album that really refused to play her music. And I think you know, some of this had to do with the expectation, you know, Whitney Houston's debut album did so well. And I think that there was an expectation um, for her to carry a torch for Black R&B and Black soul music. And when she veered a little, you know, a little more aggressively in the pop, particularly in the second album, it seemed like there was a feeling of betrayal, but also, you know, a lot of a lot of aesthetics too. The writer Doreen St. Felix has a great piece about how uh, Whitney spoke and how she changed the way she spoke as her career went on, right? Early in her career, she got like trained to speak a certain way and present her words a certain way. And as her career went on, she kind of lost that. But it was happening a lot in those first two albums where she was, you know, trained in certain modes of speech uh, to, to uh, appear more quote-unquote approachable or to appear more quote-unquote likable. And anytime I think you start talking about that, the question is likable to whom or to what audience are you trying to approach? Right. And you can even see that on the difference between the cover of the first record and the second record. You know, on the debut on Whitney Houston, she looks like a queen. She is beautiful. She is powerful. She's got natural hair. And by the second record, she looks like a cast member from Saved by the Bell. Right. Yeah. It's like the... Even the tones, you know, the first album had those like rich oranges and browns and like mahogany tones and all these things that complement her skin color. And I mean, all the time I think about her first album and how young she was because on the album cover, she looks so like regal and stoic beyond her years. And then on the second album is the one where on the cover she looks, you know, she's like kind of crafted to look even younger than she is. But I mean, Houston is someone who grew up in in newark new jersey and there were race riots when she was young i mean i don't think that Whitney houston grew up disconnected from blackness yeah her her roots are in the the soul and gospel tradition and but i also think that when she hit the industry there were those who had very clear intentions and goals for for her and i don't imagine that those goals always matched what she wanted or what her roots were. So I think a lot of folks, a lot of Black folks maybe felt left behind by how much they loved Whitney's music, but did not feel connected to her as a person in their own community. And that backlash kind of boiled up to, to a head in, 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 in the, at the end of the 80s. What Hanif is talking about there is the 1989 Soul Train Music Awards. Effectively, the Black Music Awards in America. Whitney was nominated for a few things, and when her face came up on the screen among the nominees, the crowd booed loudly. This is when she was nominated for I Want to Dance with Somebody. I mean, still, to this day, her biggest hit. It was, at the time, one of the biggest songs in the world, but to black fans in America, after what her first album sounded like, what she achieved, the second album felt like a betrayal. This is a complicated issue, especially because the history of segregation and racism in America, the role of black music, even when it's pop music, takes on a much greater meaning, especially to black audiences. The writer Tennessee Coates wrote a great piece about this in The Atlantic a few years back called I'm Not Black, I'm Kanye. It's definitely worth a read, but 
when Whitney sold all those records in her debut, when she broke down those walls, she was just trying to sing. She wanted to be a star. But black audiences couldn't help but see more in that. Something significant. They couldn't help but see her as not just a star, but their North Star to guide them home. I can't imagine what it would feel like to be booed by your peers like that. And while, of course, she was not rejected by all black audiences, and in time, those that did reject her seemed to welcome her back into the fold, I can only assume that that's a scar that never really fades. And yet, despite all that, all through that fateful year, 1989, and for years and years after, Whitney kept on getting up there on stage, despite all the pressure on her, despite all the judgment, and singing her heart out with that beautiful smile on her face. It wasn't just black American music fans that were seeing something more in Whitney, perhaps even more than she was even seeing in herself, because almost immediately, Whitney became an icon within the LGBTQ community as well. And that, like a relationship with black audiences, has evolved in quite unexpected ways over time. But in order to understand what she meant to LGBTQ people, First, you have to understand what all great divas mean to that community, and especially to gay men. The, the reason why gay men love these people that society calls divas is because those divas have accomplished or are accomplishing or are striving to accomplish the same thing that I think a lot of gay men try to accomplish, specifically ones who might be seen as more effeminate. This is Miles Johnson again. The one that blew my mind at the top of the show made me rewrite the whole episode. We spoke for almost two hours, and his understanding of cultural history is incredible, but the way he explains it, how clear he can make it for someone to understand something really special. Because what we're trying to accomplish is like this like sense of power and balance with who we feel are on the inside, but then also how people receive us and still, and still maintain the vulnerability and softness and femininity that we feel has been given to us by God. So there's something very powerful about seeing somebody who is literally using their femininity as a way to captivate, seduce an, an audience. We see ourselves in that. So when I see Janet Jackson do certain things, it's not just like, oh, I love Janet Jackson because she's a woman and I'm gay. It's like, oh, she has a type of gender performance that feels closer to mine because I don't identify with hyper-masculine things and I don't identify with these other types of softer, cookie-cutter 1950s ideas of what gender is. But something about seeing Janet Jackson be powerful and really masculine, something about seeing um, little Kim, like a month's, talking about her sexuality in a way that's captivating and, and raunchy, but, but she's also fab. And that, that is the balance that I think that people who are having femme gender, gender experiences really strive to see. And that is what makes 
these divas resonate with with gay men, specifically black gay men. Which makes the most sense, right? Everybody wants to feel strong. Everyone wants to be attractive. And everyone both consciously and subconsciously looks to culture, to the culture that we consume for models and inspirations, for the step-by-step guide, for the wardrobe choices on how to be powerful and attractive and cool. And as a straight white guy, I've never had to look very far for that sort of inspiration because the world was tailor-made to my vision of cool. You know, no matter what age I was at, when I was young, I was taking pictures of Damon Albarn of Blur into the barbershop to get my hair to look like his. And now, as an adult, I could say that I probably wouldn't own a bunch of motorcycles if I hadn't seen Steve McQueen jump that Triumph TR6 over the barbed wire fence in The Great Escape. And of course... Things are changing. Beauty standards are changing. Gender norms are shifting. And the people that we see in pop culture are starting to look different. But if you were a femme man of any gender or sexual orientation, growing up in the 80s and 90s, especially a black femme man, you wanted to find some symbol of strength and power that felt close to you and the way that you felt inside, of course, you would look to a diva like Whitney Houston. You know, it's no wonder that she's become such a staple of drag performances, too. I mean, every season of RuPaul's Drag Race, every list of the most sickening drag performances of all time, there is always a Whitney homage, because she is the queen of the queens. Personally, I'm a fan of Sasha Velour's performance of Whitney's song, So Emotional. She pulls her own wig. It's, it's incredible. It's the kind of showmanship Whitney would have been proud. When we talk about her singing... We talk about her like she's an athlete. We use words like power to describe her voice. You see those drag performances, you see power. At the same time, this person whose talent we see is powerful, Whitney's voice that we describe as such strength, is the same person we describe as beautiful, elegant, and angelic. So of course when you hear Miles Johnson explain the root of the relationship, you can see why she has meant so much to gay people. Of course, we can't talk about her influence on the LGBTQ community without mentioning the rumors that circulated about her own sexuality during her life and the stories that came out after her death. Now, like so much of Whitney's legacy, the real tragedy is, is that we'll never get to hear her side of the story. But whether it's true or not, this has only served to strengthen and deepen the bond between Whitney and LGBTQ people. Now, there's always a seat at the table for divas in the gay community. But with Whitney, because of what she achieved, because of who she was, because of her struggles, because of how she fought, and because of that voice, she's on Mount Rushmore. It colored and filtered every single thing that I read and knew about Whitney differently because then I was able to relate to her, not just as somebody who had this similar struggle of trying to get power, maintain the vulnerability, the femininity in, in, in creating a dichotomy. Now it became beyond that where I was able to see, I was able to recognize the demons. I understand what it means to be in the closet. You, you, you think to yourself, wow, Am I even going to be able to write the things that I want to write? Am I going to be able to have this type of dream? Am I going to be able to have a family? Am I going to be able to, maybe I won't like ever be in front of a camera or I can never do performance art things, all these different things because you haven't seen it. And, and then when I look at Whitney Houston, then I understand her demons in a way that feel more personal. 
I understand that struggle. So from that perspective, I was able to understand her more. And I think that the larger LGBT community, specifically the Black LGBT community, understands her more too. In the first episode, we discussed how Clive Davis, music business, saw Whitney as his chosen one, the one who could break down the walls and really cross over from hot black singles into the white pop charts. In the second episode, we talked about what it meant for her voice with that gospel athleticism to be on the radio to represent what Dr. Cox described as the black woman's sound within the mainstream. And at the top of the podcast, we saw the expectations that black audiences had for her after her debut and how they responded when she failed to live up to them. And here, we see how she was worshipped by the LGBTQ community. And of course, we all know how she was feasted on by the tabloids and abused by Bobby Brown and ground under the thumb of celebrity until she died. Her death is a tragedy. Her life is full of struggle without a doubt but there's something singular about a human that could mean so much to so many people that we would heap all of these incredible unrealistic expectations on her people like that are so rare and with the siloed nature of fandom these days it seems like it might actually be impossible for someone like that to exist in the modern age can't even imagine the pressure. I literally can't conceive it. It really puts all of my life's worries into perspective. Because I'm a drop in the ocean compared to what she was dealing with. But Whitney... Whitney really did mean all of those things to all of those people. And still does. Because in the end, it was that voice... That smile. It was Whitney. People discount pop stars. We think that they're just a pretty face or someone who's in the right place at the right time and there is certainly no shortage of no-talent hacks that skate by on that. But Whitney... Whitney was so much more than that. Even without talking about her skill and her musical ability as a singer, you can look at what she meant to such a diverse group of people and you can tell that she was different. Despite all these expectations that we heaped on her, all of this pressure, she kept on giving herself to us. She kept on performing for us. She kept on singing day after day after day. And here I am... The couple of weeks of real uncertainty and stress, and I can't even get my shit together to write one podcast, but Whitney, dealing with a lifetime of bad weeks all strung together and dealing with an unimaginable amount of stress and pressure for most of her life, she still got up there on stage looking like a goddess and sounding like an angel and always singing with that beautiful smile on her face. And this, this is how we should remember because piling on all these expectations outside of singing is just another way that we're taking away from Whitney's agency. 
It's another way we as audience, as the public, are dictating who we think Whitney should be instead of celebrating who Whitney was. When it does come to Whitney Houston, the reasons why I actually don't want her to be remembered for the kind of civil rights things that she's done because it makes it seem like it's the responsibility of the person who was born into domination to then dismantle it when it's really your responsibility to find the honey. We're back with Miles Johnson here. Our responsibility is to find the milk and honey in each in each and every moment. And that's what we did. That's how come when we came to chattel slavery, came into chattel slavery, one of the first things that we did was find the song. We sang to each other. We found we found music. We found happiness because we knew that we had to mentally understand the frequency of freedom before we were to ever manifest it. So we had to mentally not be in shackles before we could ever be at a moment where we could actually transcend the shackles. And I think because of what's happening in Minneapolis, because of you know George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, you're going to see a lot, a lot of black artists and, and thinkers and writers who have fairy tales and fantasy worlds and avant-garde ideas and silly cool ideas that seem frivolous, ideas that like they won't feel the freedom to express. And and it, it, it is your birthright to say, hey, I just want to sing. I just want to be a star. I want to get a lot of attention for something I'm good at. And I actually don't want to have to speak for a nation of people who are very different. I've been in situations with, with, with Black folks, and we can hardly agree what's going to go on in one household for people. <laughs> it is ridiculous to try to like make it seem like we can then direct a whole group of people of where to go. That's how come our messaging is so broad. We're like, Black Lives Matter? Does that work for everybody? <laughs> <laughs> we all agree really, anything else is just too specific to umbrellas under. And I think Whitney Houston's tragedy, the tragic, the tragedy of Whitney Houston has made people think like that, made my community of artists and my generation of artists think like that, say, wow, maybe this cookie cutter is not for us. Perhaps us fitting into a cookie cutter is solely for the purpose of us to be devoured. Damn. But I don't want to be known as like the civil rights leader or somebody who did this stuff for black queer people or whatever, like whatever, like. I want to be known as a really good artist, whatever that looks like for me. And something tells me that a Whitney Houston wants to be known for the moments that she really just got to sing. That's what she really wanted to do. Whitney Houston lives in Black America's hearts because of her voice, because of her melody. That's all for the season of the Opus. I want to thank my guests from today, writer, cultural critic, performance artist, Miles Johnson. Thank you for putting it all perspective for me. Thanks to Dessa for that quick little quote in there. I haven't stopped thinking about that one. And writer, poet, brilliant thinker, Hanif Abdurraqib for making the time. Been trying to get him on the show for a minute. He did not disappoint. 
there's still time to win that collector's edition of Whitney's debut album on vinyl with a 40-page hardcover book and that peaches and cream vinyl over at consequencesound.net. So if you want to cop that thing, head on over there and enter before it's gone. It's been a rough couple of weeks for all of us, but despite the writer's block and the distraction sometimes, when I'm all done making an episode, it feels a bit like I've gotten out of therapy. So thanks to all my guests for taking the time talking to me. Thanks to all y'all for listening. It means a lot. So for ConsequencesSound.net, Sony Legacy Recordings, I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and this is The Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.